The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Stefan Fatsis, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of May 20th, 2019. On this week's show, we'll talk about Zion and the New Orleans Pelicans and also Giannis and the Milwaukee Bucks, though not very much, and Steph and the Golden State Warriors, former Baltimore Ravens lineman and MIT mathematics PhD candidate John Urschel will be here to discuss his new book, Mind and Matter. Finally, Louisa Thomas of The New Yorker will help us understand the mind of Nick Kyrgios, who threw a chair and said some controversial things last week and why that matters for men's tennis. Joining me in Slate's Washington, D.C. bureau is none other than Josh Levine, the magazine's national editor. He is raising his fist in solidarity with the podcast. More important than his title, though, he is the author of The Queen, The Forgotten Life Behind an American Myth, now out in hardcover. I guess tomorrow, really. Pub date is Tuesday, right? Tuesday, May 21st. Yay. Yeah. Um, do you want to update us? I can. I've got a little banter here. Unless you want to go right into the the hard. I have a couple things. I have a couple things I could say. Okay, go ahead. So, if you subscribe to the Hang Up and Listen feed, you will have heard the first episode of the Queen podcast. Those are coming out every Monday for four weeks. But I just wanted to, um, you know, I haven't heard from anyone that they're annoyed by book promotion on the podcast. So I'm just going to like go for it full bore. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been doing this sh- show, Stefan, we've been doing this show for like 10 years now. And I've been working Almost. on this book for six. I've been working, I started working on the article that turned into the book in 2012. So for the majority of the time I've been doing the podcast, I've had this kind of second life behind the scenes of trying to f- do the research and, and really, get this thing done. Life, because you have a job too. I do. I have a job too. Um, and so it's obviously a pretty uh, exciting and special thing for me to be done with it and to have it out this week and to have people that listen to the show and, and other people in the world and in my life be able to see and read this thing that I have, you know, it's like more my life's work than anything else that I've done. Um, and so it would mean a lot if people bought it, told people about it, read it came to events. Um, I put the event schedule on our Facebook page and I can do it again, but I'll be in New York and DC this week and out in California, LA, San Francisco and the East Bay the week after that and then in Chicago. Um, and yeah, so forgive the sincerity, but um, please check out the book. I'm proud of it. I think it's good. And if you have developed any kind of relationship with me, over the years, hopefully you will be interested in seeing this thing that I've done. Don't just take Josh's word for it. I went to Amazon, read through the reviews. ERB says Linda Taylor, the subject of Josh's book, was a welfare cheat in the same way that Charles Manson was a trespasser. And then another reviewer says she was a welfare cheat the same way Ted Kaczynski was a litterer. I'm not Those sure were what two either of people. The, they were two different reviews. That's odd. Okay. Are they friends of yours, Josh? <laughs> no. Let's hope. No idea where that came from. I know. Um, Linda Taylor was, you know, I don't know if Charles Manson and Ted Kaczynski would be the right references, but again, Josh's story is so deeply reported, so compelling, so gripping, and the narrative is propulsive, I think would be a reviewee word to use. Um, really. 
Go read the book. Buy the book. Come to a reading. I'll be at, I'll be at the reading in, uh, on Wednesday evening in Washington, D.C. at Solid State Books on H Street Northeast. Yeah, it'd be great to see folks and meet folks who um, are podcast fans. Um, and by Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic also. The Hang Up uh, Variety Pack. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. There was a bit of intrigue in the NBA's conference finals on Sunday night with Toronto squeaking out a double overtime win over Milwaukee to get their series back to a two-to-one margin with Milwaukee in favor. I say a bit of intrigue because I will confess that I found the game kind of blah. Giannis was bad. He eventually fouled out. Although if you love rebounds, he had 23 of them. Kawhi was pretty good, I guess, but that's enough of that. Enough of the East. Let's embrace our West Coast bias and talk about the Warriors coming back from 18 down to beat the Blazers on Saturday and take a 3-0 lead in the Western Conference Finals. Golden State is now 4-0 since Kevin Durant hurt his calf. 5-0 if you count the game where he got hurt in the third quarter. Uh, the ball is flying around on offense. The takes are flying too. Oh, the takes. Joining us now is Ethan Strauss, who writes about the Warriors for The Athletic and who once inspired Kevin Durant to say both, you guys really don't know shit and y'all, not my friends, Fair enough. True. Welcome, Ethan. Yeah, that's true. It's it's <laughs> it's a very good point about the uh, the, the not his friends. Uh, hey, thanks and for having also, me. Also, they don't know shit. I mean, let's be clear. Kevin Durant knows more about basketball than you do. Well, it's like uh, fair. Yeah, no, that is that is definitely true. I think he knows more about the Warriors playbook, and there's also an element, as they once said, of Hollywood was it it was a good win uh, that nobody knows anything. I think there's an element of that that's also the case. So I was perusing Google News in preparation for this segment and ran across the following headlines. Are the Warriors better without Kevin Durant? Are Warriors better without Kevin Durant? I think that's a slight improvement. Nick Wright and Colin Cowherd agree the Warriors are better without Kevin Durant. And But finally, Ethan, a dissenting opinion. Draymond Green's mom agrees Warriors need Kevin Durant for NBA Finals. Mm. I see. So it's funny. A lot of those headlines are formed in uh, a question, right? Because the person saying it doesn't actually believe it, but they <laughs> want people to visit and argue about it and get mad about it. I think we call that clickbait. I think that's, the, that's that term. I see far more, I have to say, front lash on this uh, than backlash. I see far more people who are trying to shout down anybody anticipating this particular argument uh, that, they, that they might think it and basically saying, uh, look, you idiot plebs, they're not better with, uh, <laughs> without Kevin Durant. And you need to know that in case you might get the crazy notion that they are. But look, they're, they're not better. Uh, but at the same time, basketball isn't exactly linear. And so it's sometimes a little matchup dependent. My contrarian take is that the Warriors are just better. They're better with Kevin Durant <laughs> and they're better without Kevin Durant. They're just better at basketball than the teams that they have been playing. So you're saying that Ethan is wrong when he says the Warriors weren't trying when Durant was on the floor? Because that's clearly what he was saying. That's the headline <laughs> coming out of this podcast. I kind of mean it. I kind of mean it. I'm not lying. I mean, look, they're trying. They want to win. But 
I don't think that they felt the need to just my just just I don't know what cliche I want to go with, but they now have a sense that everybody has to do everything to the detail and that they have to collectively strive in a way they didn't before because it was a little bit simple. You would have the Steph KD pick and roll if they absolutely needed a bucket. Uh, the defense would switch assignments and then it was, oh, Kevin will shoot a unblockable turnaround shot over the smaller guy. And okay. I mean, not everybody needs to be so included yeah. in that. But well, now there's what, a sense of everybody has to join forces and and go full bore. Well, what I think you're saying is that the Warriors are a little bit more interesting to watch right now. Oh, that's what, the TV, that's what the TV ratings say. And that is it. That to me, that's unprecedented. Because it's, it's un- narrative and it's, and it's legit on the basketball court. I mean, Josh, you said in your intro, they're throwing a lot of passes. The ball's moving, whipping around the perimeter. And, and there's a narrative. Jonas now. Jerebko gets more run. That's yes, always that's always fun to watch. Who doesn't yeah, want to tune in for that? Who doesn't? And also, we just like watching the little guy jack 30-footers. That's what people want. That's what the people <laughs> want to see. Durant said it himself. He talked about the the Goliath-David uh, narrative and how Patrick Beverly was allowed to foul him. Uh, we recall Will Chamberlain saying nobody roots for Goliath. Even if Kevin Durant is a highly skilled wing, uh, it seems that he's a bit of a Goliath figure, that people aren't as interested. This is completely unprecedented, I believe just in the history of basketball, that a superstar would get hurt and the ratings would surge. You know who, uh, you know, famous blogger and hot taker Seth Curry of Mm. the Blazers said that the Warriors were harder to guard without Kevin Durant. Just a classic hot take from the Skip Bayless of the uh, Portland backcourt. That's literally true when it comes to Seth Curry because of the switching assignments Seth can't get on the floor uh, when Kevin Durant is in the game. So literally for Seth Curry, uh, the Warriors are harder to guard without KD because he's on the floor having to guard them. Right. And and it makes for a better story, too, having Seth Curry on the floor. So maybe that's the conspiracy theory. Mm -hmm. Kevin Durant's out so that Seth Curry can play so that he can guard Steph Curry a few times a game. And then they can talk about how cool it is for them to play each other. You know what it's I all- think you know what I think is the fake story of this mm. this series is the idea that like we're tired of the like Seth and Steph thing. We're not tired of it. It's great. Why, how is how it tiring? tiring? They're so guarding tiring. each other awesome. and like Seth is stealing the ball from from Steph and like legitimately seems to know his moves and be able to anticipate them. You know, maybe we could go for I don't even care about the crowd shots of their parents. I like that too. I'm going to own it. I think more it, of it. Do you how do you feel about the 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 shirts though? The the front part Golden State, the back Portland. I mean, I wouldn't wear it personally, but it seems like not super inappropriate for them. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that I was anticipating being or a lot of people were anticipating being tired of it, but then it delivered. Then it delivered. It has you delivered. Know, you, yeah, you, you go in and you're going, okay, they're related. I get it. Whatever, you know, doesn't it doesn't have much basketball rel- uh, relevance. But then Seth appears to know a lot of Steph's moves, and he's completely in his jersey, and he's disrupting him, and he sometimes gets the better of him, and it feels like that classic kids movie little giants every now and again i don't know why that's the first example that pops (laughs) into my mind uh for me i use the uh, example from gattaca that 1997 uh, blockbuster 
One or one or the other. Did just you look up love- the year that Gattaca was made in anticipation of making the reference? <laughs> no, I, I remembered it because I referenced it in my article. So uh, I, I okay. was like, oh, what year was that? And 97 was a magical year for movies, to be clear. Boogie Nights, fantastic movie. I think Titanic might have come out in 1997. Anyway, um, it reminded me of Gattaca because you have the two brothers. Uh, Ethan Hawke plays the normie. And then you've got the other who's been superhuman, genetically engineered, and in a climactic scene, uh, Ethan Hawke beats his super genetically engineered brother in this game of chicken where they swim out into the ocean. Uh, and it's whoever tires out just turns back, and he beats he beats his super brother, and his super brother demands to know why, and he tells him, "Hey, here's how I did it, and here's how I've done it in the past when they had this battle in the past, and it's because." I didn't save anything for the swim back, buddy. I didn't save anything like you did. And I think Seth has those moments where he is just, he doesn't have to pace himself like Steph does. So he's going full bore. I said full bore earlier. I'll use it again. I I don't have another cliche for that. But he's expending all his energy uh, because he doesn't have as many responsibilities. And every now and again, he gets the better of his better brother. It's great theater. You know who else in... uh the category of, of seamless transitions. You know who else has been putting it all uh, all out there for for his team and for our enjoyment? And, Draymond Green. And is superhuman. Draymond Green. Okay. Um, Would you do that kind of transition? I keep expecting an advertisement to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Blue Apron. Uh, Dr- Draymond Green. Um, do we buy the idea that Draymond Green, the reason that he's been successful during the, this playoff run, is that he has a kid He's more balanced. He's got a fiance. He doesn't want his kid to emulate him and like be complaining about the officials and flopping. He he told some story about his kid was like flopping when playing Nerf basketball. And Draymond's like, I got to get this kid to stop watching the NBA. How much how much are we buying into this narrative of of a new a new Draymond? Um, I prefer the narrative that he lost twenty three pounds <laughs> going to Soul Cycle. I think, oh, okay. I think some legitimacy to that speaking of advertising wait wait wait. you have to go to soul cycle if you're on an nba team you can't just go to the facility (laughs) draymond likes biking he likes biking as his weight loss uh just the way he he's always like that early in his career at michigan he he liked the uh he liked the bike Uh, he would do it in the sauna as i wrote an article for whatever reason and you know now he goes to soul cycle and he lost 23 pounds in season and He's recaptured his earlier form and he's flying around out there. So I think that might be part of it. But Draymond gets theater. He understands that there's an element of pro wrestling. He does think about certain things that he's going to say to media. um, And he frames it. He frames it well. In the last game, he was framing how he encouraged Jordan Bell after Jordan Bell missed that dunk. Um, and how he was drawing inspiration from how the video coordinator came up to him and said, Draymond, you've got a big influence on these guys. You've got to lift them up. He, he tells us all these stories. On the other team, there's another team that they're playing, the, the Blazers. Um, Can I just say one thing very quickly about, about game three? Team, yeah. Draymond was so good. It was like absurd how good he he's, was in that he's game. Incredible. Unbelievable. Yeah, the, the 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 game stories like listed the stat lines and there were like 17 numbers, 20, 14, 13, 12, <laughs> 9, 7, 8, 2. I didn't even know what the last three or four were, but he did a lot of good things apparently. Um, he was, yeah. He was great, man. He was he was he was amazing. You wanted to talk about the other team though. 
So there's a good segue. Um, who wasn't great would be Damian Lillard um, of the Portland Trail Blazers, who's having a rough time in this series. Do we believe the, the, rib, the rib scenario? Um, well, did you watch the video of him having a 250-pound person fall on his ribs? So, yes, I hey, think Damian Kevon, Lillard Kevon is hurt. Looney, Kevon Looney is a name, sir. <laughs> Does he weigh 250 pounds, though? I think he weighs. It sounds yeah, about sounds right. Sounds about right. Um, so, Kevon Looney falls on Damian Lillard, separates a rib, um, which sounds very painful. The takes on Twitter are, oh, it's just coming out now after Lillard had a bad game. Oh, he's making excuses. Wait, maybe Ethan will correct you and say that that's not the actual take, that people just want to sound better than the take by claiming yeah. that's the take. Oh, you yeah, think? Yeah, they, they want to morally preen. So <laughs> okay. I think the front lash take would be, I'm sick of these people who say that <laughs> yeah. he did this cynically. They don't understand okay. what a warrior Damian Lillard is and that they would just these couch potatoes who have never played hurt for them to cast aspersions just disgust is, me. Is front lash in Merriam-Webster's? It should Stephen? be. I'm you should define that. I'm going to define that. Um, Lillard did the predictable thing and replied to the front end backlash by saying he didn't want to make his rib injury an excuse, even though clearly like having a broken rib, it's got to be hard to play basketball. Well, is, is a separated rib a broken rib? Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm just yeah. elevating it to broken. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what a separated rib is exactly. Separated from what? How do we compare Are, Lillard's separated rib to LeBron's hand after game one of yeah. last year's finals? Aren't, aren't all ribs kind of separated? <laughs> I guess they're sort of in this liminal space between. They're, they're separated and they're also connected. I, I believe that his rib is hurt for the for the record i was hearing about it before um before it was announced uh talking to some people in the Lillard's camp <laughs> you didn't they report said, it well what i'm like i'm hearing about it you, you don't actually have the complete proof i'm not i don't know i'm not going to go up to him and just wrap him on the rib and say hey okay he reacted he flinched let's let's, let's run with it right. you're he a little wanted bit to let us know that he knew before we did that's all no i i do think it's <laughs> no i think it's relevant though because um, well, A, there's the braggy part of I'm in the know and exactly. you plebs aren't. Yeah. So there's yeah. that uh, there, there's that aspect, you know. But there's also just the aspect of I don't think that this was any kind of cynical um, message control. This is something that people were whispering about before and talking about before. Um, and based on how he played, I believe it. And also maybe there's just an element of attrition and the seven-game series before. Yeah. There, there's, a, there's, a, there's a heavy load on Lillard. All right, let's talk about uh, Zion. Um, and I, well, we'll hear it in a second, but I instructed Ethan that he needed to come prepared with the take. So we'll, we'll hear what that is momentarily. But here are my, uh, my bullet points on the Pelicans winning the, ladder, uh, the, the lottery. Number one, the sense of, and, and may, I'm, I'm just like teeing up Ethan repeatedly here. Maybe this, will, this is front lash. I actually don't think this is front lash. Mm. But the, but the entitlement of Knicks fans who with a 14% chance to win the lottery are disappointed, not only disappointed, outraged, feel bereft, like something was taken from them, that they didn't get the number one pick in the draft is just like the most Knicks thing that's ever happened. This franchise that has never accomplished anything. It's like the most not never. high opinion. Well, not accomplished anything in my lifetime. Sorry. Um, the... <laughs> just has the the highest opinion of itself and like the world's greatest arena, like all this shit. It's just like, go, go away, Knicks, number one. Number two, 
as sports fans, we have to be hypocritical. There's no other way to, to watch and enjoy sports. So on the one hand, I can sit here and say the draft is bad. Players should be able to pick where they want to go. But also Zion should definitely go to New Orleans. And people are saying you shouldn't go to New Orleans because it's not a big enough market. Just go to hell. Zion, go, go, to where, go to where you're drafted. You'll have a great time. That's These are my draft takes. Is there something funny about you shouldn't go to New Orleans because you think of New Orleans so often in a tourism context? It's not a big <laughs> enough market. You shouldn't visit New Orleans. It's it not, does seem like it'll hurt his earning potential, like from a marketing perspective. Oh, it certainly will. It's it's you know it's so sad, but the food mecca of America happens to be its basketball Siberia. Oh, I don't it's know. I think it, if Giannis can get those Hulu commercials wearing those flip flops, Zion's going to get something. New Orleans. I mean, he'll get something, but New Orleans is it's it's unfortunate. I mean, colleagues and I we had running jokes about this during the playoffs in New Orleans that. The Uber cab driver would not know there was a basketball game, would not know who was playing in it, would not know that it was that night, would not know that the city had a basketball team. And that's perhaps a very Thomas Friedman-esque, uh, <laughs> I talked to the cab driver, but it was a regular experience that I had and colleagues had, and it's reflected in the ratings, it's reflected in the attendance. And the question- They sold 3,000 season tickets. People yeah. know, people know now. Okay. I mean, I think the question is this. Was that because the Southeast, the NBA just isn't resonant in the Southeast? Is that because the mismanagement of the Pelicans as a franchise and how they were just little brother to the Saints, which that family also owns? Or was Anthony Davis's game just not too charismatic? We talked earlier about how nobody roots for Goliath. Was he just not resonant in the way that Zion is. I think that's a, there's a, there's a strong possibility, but I'll say this much. I'll say this much. <laughs> Even if Zion uh, does have that charisma and he can transcend, there is a force multiplier effect to being in a market where more people live um, and is more in that uh, media concentration uh, that he will not receive. And it probably will have hurt his earning potential a lot his nike deal theoretically because i don't, I don't know believe- ethan i'm shaking my head because I'm, if, I'm I, look around, if you, I look around i look, I'm look around the yes. end i'm telling you i know i'm telling you yes i'm telling but, you yes. but does it really matter i mean look around the nba today and look at the most most dynamic most marketable players and i'm not convinced that that new orleans is a second tier market will affect him that much. Ethan is saying it's no Cleveland. That's what Ethan is saying. Is it a Milwaukee? Is it an Oakland? Is it a Cleveland? By the way, you said Oakland is just not acceptable. Sorry. Yeah. I'm trying to prove a point. Hey, all those big stars in New York. Woo. They're taking away Zion's money. Well, to your point, to your point. Well, okay. So you guys all have a point. Um, You know, Josh is right that it's ridiculous to feel entitled to 14%, uh, 14% chance. Um, but 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 I think Stefan, the the thing is, New Orleans is the worst market in the NBA. It's the worst one. There's no worse one. Not anymore. I can't, wow. I, Not anymore. It, it just it just it just <laughs> it just is. But to your point and to what you're saying, what do you want? You can't get everything you want. Um, if New Orleans has a great GM and David Griffin, and they've got some assets, and you believe that they've turned a corner and will be the best basketball situation, will optimize your talents, then okay, they're not the greatest market. They're not going to make you more famous, but they're going to make you a fantastic basketball player and the team will win. Uh, you know, Maybe that's what's important. The Knicks certainly can't say that. 
um, or at least can't say that definitively. So it wouldn't be the it, it wouldn't be the craziest idea to say, hey, I'm going to roll with the better basketball situation in a smaller market uh, than the big market that will make me more immediately famous. But look what they did to uh, Porzingis. Well, I mean, also consider the Clippers and the um, Sterling era. That was the worst run franchise in the league. And you could go there um, to this huge media market and just nobody would know who you were. Um, so there's a counterexample yeah. there too. And like Danny Ferry refused to go to the Clippers when uh, they drafted him and he went to play in Italy because that franchise sucked so badly. Yeah. And I, I want to make a point about New Orleans and you know, that's your, that's your area, Josh. Uh, it's, I think people get a little confused sometimes because it's so world famous as a destination but it's very small. Like not a lot of people live there, and I think that's that's part of it. You just don't you don't have a lot of people there, and then you're sharing the market with the unbelievably popular Saints, and then LSU. It's just a tough basketball market. It's it's just a tough basketball market. Yeah, see that passion. It's hard to compete with that passion. Um, you know, it's it's been an issue for the NBA after the 1990s. They tried to expand in the Southeast, and it just hasn't really worked out. Well, they also tried to, that there was a sense that they were going to take the franchise away after Katrina, which would have looked very bad. And so they, and there's also a sense that that. it's been horribly mismanaged for the last five years. That could change. No, I feel like that's an exaggeration. How badly it's been mismanaged. Like David Griffin has come in and immediately won the lottery. So great job, David Griffin. But (laughs) they also like hired Aaron Nelson from the Suns, who's known as the best trainer, medical guy. In the league, they also like hired a GM Number under Griffin. So um, they have. The, if you're looking spending... for a good trainer, NBA prospects and free agents, New Orleans is your destination. No, but it's it seems like they are. Even if you don't agree that it was horribly mismanaged, I think you can agree that it seems like they are going to be a quote unquote first class organization yes. now. Well, and that's the <laughs> point, isn't it? I mean, they're going to be a first class. They've done a better job on the management side. They have drafted, they've won the rights to draft Zion Williamson. And, oh, there's a name we haven't mentioned in the seven minutes we've been talking about this, and that's Anthony Davis. Yeah, he's still going to leave. He's still going to leave? I think so. You what, is, what, are you hearing? what are you hearing? Give when us you, your, when, yes. you over, when you overhear about <clears throat> Lillard's rib, what else, what, are, what, else you, what else aren't you reporting? <laughs> what, what else aren't I saying? No, no, guys, come on, don't be crazy. I only retroactively tell you that I knew. I don't tell you what I know beforehand. That kind of thing gets me yelled at by people like Kevin Durant. Who wants that? It's always better after the fact uh, to condescend to the public. That's the way to go with it. Look, I think the expectation is that Davis still wants out, but – you know, when the decision rests within the mind of one guy, you never you never quite know. Uh, he certainly burned a lot of bridges. That shirt, the that's all, folks, on the uh, the last game, leaving the arena beforehand. Did you see that David Griffin claimed that was a reference to Space Jam too? I mean, sure, <laughs> whatever, fine. <laughs> if, if that's what's said, um, it was actually a reference to Gattaca. It was a reference to Gattaca to that swim. Uh-huh. It was it was over. <laughs> Of course, as, as, as anybody could have known if they weren't trying to hot take and, uh, and front lash. Uh, I, it, it seems like he wants out. Um, it hasn't gone well there. Uh, I don't think he's handling it well. I don't think it's been good for the league overall. Uh, it's, it's been bad. I think, I mean, this is a whole other topic. I'm all for player empowerment. It's great. It's fantastic. But sometimes you wonder if 
this level of movement is good if you have one guy doing it who has the gravitas and stature of a LeBron James. I don't know if the NBA can afford dozens of people doing this. I think that's a thought I had in in relation to the Anthony Davis experience and trying to uh, get in on pre-agency, as it were. Um, (laughs) I think... uh that's enough coinages for uh, for one day. Wait, wait, wait. Uh, but the unanswered question is, does having Zion increase the chances that Davis will stay? I don't understand why. I don't understand what's going on in his head, obviously. But if the complaint was that the franchise was poorly run and they didn't put him in a position to succeed for all of these many years, then you would say, all right, they have David Griffin and they have Zion now on a trio. Well, that's, clearly, that's, that's clearly the claim because Anthony Davis has tried to go to the Los Angeles Lakers. It's clearly about the competence of the front right. office and the uh, right. and the organization. And that's what he's searching for. He's searching for, uh, you know, that, that Laker franchise is so well run. If he wanted to go to the Lakers, then nothing is nothing that's happened in New Orleans would, would change that. Um, the Lakers are looking even more incompetent. So that perhaps that's even more of a draw for him. Um, a lot of these guys, they seem to be, and I don't know Davis, so who knows what motivates him. Um, it does seem like there's a little more focus on the brand and there's a little bit more of a focus on brand anxiety. Maybe that's just us fetishizing the past and romanticizing the past, but there does seem to be this sense players, even in good situations want to upgrade and they want, um, they, they want to get more famous and it seems to be, uh, causing a lot of tension on these teams and in situations where you wonder why, what's even the point of trying to leave a situation like Boston with Kyrie, where they seem to be in a pretty good spot and have some young players in a bright future. There's still a sense of this isn't good enough and it's become widespread. Ethan Strauss writes uh, for the athletic. He does know shit and he is our friend. Aw, thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, Ethan. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. If you go to the homepage for John Urschel under contact, you'll find this note. Non-academic emails receive no response. I don't think Urschel's big-timing anyone here. I think he's being practical, separating his current life as a PhD candidate in mathematics at MIT from his former life as a professional football player. Urschel's existence in those seemingly disparate worlds is the subject of his new book written with his wife, Louisa Thomas. It's titled Mind and Matter, A Life in Math and Football. John Urschel is in the studio with us now. Hey, John. Welcome. 
Thanks for having me. All right. I don't want to make it seem as if your MIT webpage is hiding your football life, because if you click a little deeper on your resume under prior work experience, (laughs) the first listing is American football player, Baltimore Ravens, National Football League, 2014 to 2017. Ultimately, John, this is what makes your short life so far genuinely book worthy. And this is a wonderful read. The utter polarity of being at once an elite NFL offensive lineman and an elite mathematical mind. Why did you want to do this book now? Well, the motivation for writing this book was actually that I wanted to write a math book. I wanted to write a book that describes my interaction with mathematics, my journey with mathematics, and conveys sort of the mathematics that I've encountered to a broad audience. And Penguin liked this idea. But they said, John, we like this idea and we really like you, but you'd really be doing readers a disservice in that you can't talk about math and your sort of experiences with it and just leave out your whole sort of career playing football. They, they thought that, you know, John, this isn't going to go like this is not this is not a good idea. And if you sort of talk about your life holistically, put more of yourself in it and also discuss football the math and your journey with mathematics will be more accessible to readers. And they were absolutely right. And that's how the book came to be. So there's a story about how when you were at Penn State, a math professor took an interest in you, gave you a book, which sparked your interest. And one of the um, really fascinating things that that brings up is how, you know, when you're a football player, you were noticed by so many people in so many different ways at so many different times. And there was really no chance that you were going to get missed or passed over as a football prospect. But with a math thing, it just seems like a totally chance thing where one person noticed you, decided that you had talent. And that just opens up a wide like universe of questions about how we select for people for various fields and why in like this country and in the world, I guess. And as you put it in the book, no one in high school ever called MIT or Princeton's math departments and told them to recruit me. Yes. And while that might sound or seem ridiculous, I'm, I'm attempting to make some sort of point here. I wasn't an underachiever in math. In fact, you know, in my high school, I was the strongest math student. You know, I was some quarters... I would get a hundred. So we didn't do A, B, and C. We did, you know, numbers. I would go a whole sort of like quarter of the year without getting a single thing wrong on a single homework, a single quiz, a single exam. And uh, it's worth you, pointing out here that your father put you in a college calculus class when you were in eighth grade. Yes, yes. I, you know, I. You were predisposed to this. Your mind worked this way from a very young age. Yes, and I sort of, I always learned math at home through workbooks and through reading, and and yeah, I mean, everyone just saw that I was really good at math, and they said, okay, that's that's good. We don't have to worry about him. And it wasn't until this college class where this professor, you know, he sort of. He just noticed that, wow, this kid has an unusual aptitude for this. Let me take him under my wing. And with football, you, as I said, were noticed and seen earlier and more frequently. Do you feel like um, that there's a lesson there for um, how we, you know, deal with people who are, are academically gifted or is, is that does that not scale just because of the way we think about 
sports and the way that it um, works in our culture is just like so different. It is so different. But at the same time, I think there's a lesson we can take away from this. And I wrote a, uh, I wrote a New York Times op-ed sort of related to this. And the main idea is that a little bit of motivation and a little bit of telling a young person that they can aspire to be something and showing them something that they can be can go a long way. So me, for instance, I, I was good at math you know, ever since I was little. And as crazy as this sounds – I had no clue what a mathematician was until that professor picked me out of that class and introduced me to mathematical research and showed me what it was he did and really sort of opened my eyes to this profession I didn't even know existed. What I like about the way you structure the book is that you don't take the obvious path of conflating football and math. But thematically, John, it's kind of hard to avoid the parallels because there are parallels. And I think you allude to them at different points in the book. They both are about sort of trying to make order out of chaos, trying to make sense of the world. Um, And I think the point that you really latch on to is that both football and mathematics sort of – reveal the, the, the constant uncertainty in life and in these professions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, uh, I agree. There's, there's definitely parallels there. I think these parallels are very abstract and though they do, certain, they do certainly share things in common, I wouldn't say that the things they share in common are the shared things that brought me to them. I, you know, I have to admit that although, like discussed in the book, there are some, you know, some tenuous sort of uh, overlap, what brought me to football was, first of all, my father played football, and this is what introduced me to it, but just me loving hitting people, (laughs) simply put. And what brought me to math was me loving solving problems, solving puzzles, figuring out why. I love how you just gently told Stefan that he was wrong, but it was like so polite <laughs> that you almost didn't even notice that you were that you were just totally well, wrong. My Stephen. original point was that he doesn't try to create these false. <laughs> yes. just giving you shit. No. <laughs> I understand that. I understand that. Um, so, can you tell us the name of of one of your papers? Yes, uh, I'll tell you the name of my first paper: "Instabilities in the Sun-Jupiter Asteroid Three Body Problem." This was the paper that was a result of the professor who sort of noticed me in this class. His name was Vadim Koloshin. He took me under his wing. This is at Penn State. At Penn State. And uh, that paper was the result of the research project he gave me. And so the reason I bring that up is that, and and I'm sure, <laughs> I, I think that you'll agree with me, that a lot of times in a sports context, when people will ask you to name a paper, they'll do it, to, they'll do it and say like, I don't know what any of those words mean <laughs> or like, man, like I got a, you know, F in math. And that's just a huge pet peeve yes. of mine, the kind of like anti-intellectualism and so much sports commentary. You'll see it during games where announcers will talk about how they were really dumb in school when they're, when they're talking about a player who got A's. Um, I'm wondering if that bugs you. And I'm wondering if you encountered a lot of that anti-intellectualism, not just when you're going on this circuit, but when you're actually in locker rooms? No, this is a great question. I, I have to say, 
casual sort of viewers or listeners rather will be shocked to find how many bright people there are in the NFL. That NFL locker rooms have a surprisingly large amount of generally intelligent people who like to think about things. And yes, so, Stefan says this all the time. I, yes. I mean, I, this was one of the biggest takeaways from my experience in an NFL locker room. These guys are smart. And offensive linemen think that they're the smartest people in that <laughs> locker room. So that, that, is, yeah. that is true. But uh, I will say that often the way that the media portrays me or has portrayed me has been in a light that sort of says, wow, look at this person. This is just crazy. Mm-hmm. He's so good with numbers. He's writing papers that we can't pronounce. Just they don't put you on a continuum with other players. Yes. Just like a, they just say a data point that's way off. Wow. Wow. He's right. just Somewhere. so far out here. And yeah, this is just crazy. And none of us can understand this. And this math is just way too hard. Yeah. And that, it bothers me to a small degree. But when, when this is the norm, when this is what everyone is doing, when, when I give speeches and people introduce me by trying to say and pronounce one of my papers and there's yeah. a big laugh from the audience, this is – at some point, you just accept it. There's a point in the book where you actually say that you grew so tired of these kinds of questions that you just gave reporters the answer that they wanted to hear. At some point, you just give up. For instance, you know, I'm in the NFL and I remember I'm getting filmed for some spot for Sunday night football or Monday night football or something. And they've got me in front of this you know, camera and they're feeding me sort of like these questions where they really are telling me the answer they want. Like they're like, can you explain how such and such and such? And at some point I just like – I just gave up and I said, you know what? You're right. Math and football are exactly the same thing. <laughs> like just tell me – just tell me how they are and just let me be done with it. It's this. like smart guy. Be smart for us. Yes. Uh, yes. On cue. Um, so – one thing that we hear whenever like it's at the draft combine and there's a guy who has an outside interest, something that's not football, yes. <laughs> anything that's not football is an outside interest. There's some concern about um, will that mean that they don't love the game? You yeah. clearly – that's clearly not the case with you. You love football and yet you quit. So yes. does that validate the idea that if somebody is super passionate about something that isn't football, that maybe there should be a concern? That's a great question that I did start thinking about. And I have to say, maybe yes. Maybe yes. When I came into the league and people were asking me these questions, I was insulted. I thought, no, no, no. I love football. Football is, you know, football is coming first right now. You don't need to worry about this math thing. And it turns out, they were right. I was wrong. I, and I have no problem admitting this. I was absolutely wrong when I came into the league. Yeah. yeah. By your second or third year in the league, you are full-on committed to math. During the season, you yes. are taking cl- – you're, you're sort of corresponding at MIT yes. and at Penn State. Yes. You then in the spring go to Boston and begin your full load of coursework and PhD work. Um, how on earth did you do that? I mean, how did you compartmentalize the 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 the, the very different and very demanding um, aspects of these two professions? I'm going to give our listeners some advice. Don't do this. <laughs> do not do this. Like I'm telling you, as someone who did do it, do not do this. 
So college football plus majoring in mathematics, I felt that I had plenty of extra time. I mean, okay, not a great deal, but I worked very hard at math, very hard at football, and I felt like I wasn't selling either short and I had plenty of time to hang out with my friends and do other things. College sports can be a really enjoyable thing. Do not attempt to do two full-time jobs at the same time, two truly full-time jobs. You just There's just not enough hours. Well, and there are also two jobs that demand about as much as you can from the two sides of our, of our, of our bodies, the yes. physical side and the, and the intellectual side. Yes, and it was too much. I, like in hindsight, I have no problem admitting that sort of like in the fall, sort of being in season playing in the NFL and then trying to literally do all of my reading, all of my assignments from the moment the game ends until I show up to the football facility that uh, that Tuesday, like 11 a.m. In Baltimore, I know some teams meet Monday and have Tuesday off. We had Monday off and we meet Tuesday. Trying to do all the math that I was supposed to do for the week in this like roughly 48-hour period, I was just killing myself. And then you do reach a, a, a sort of, a, I don't know if it was epiphanic moment, but mm -hmm. you read a story in the New York Times about brain injury. It's something mm -hmm. that you have actually thought about, obviously, the way every NFL player does. But the way you talk about it in the book is reminded me of the conversations I had with the Denver Broncos, with some of the players, about how you have to sublimate these fears. You can't think about this when you're on the field. You don't even think about it much when you're off the field because if you acknowledge that I'm getting – a hundred or a thousand or three thousand sub subconcussive hits every season, you're gonna not be as effective a football player. But mm -hmm. there is this moment where you read the story in the Times about the hundred and ten out of one hundred and eleven brains studied by BU are found to have CTE, and you make a decision. Mm -hmm. So I agree. Sort of my whole time playing, this is not something I really worried about in the sense that. I would think about this once. I would really think, do I want to play football? Is this something that's really important to me? I would decide yes. And then I would also decide in that same moment, I am not going to think about this again for the exact reasons that you mentioned. And then all of a sudden, after my third year in, in the league, first of all, I am exhausted when the season ends. Not only am I exhausted, I'm exhausted and the season ends. We don't make the playoffs. Season ends like January 1st. I've managed to do all my assignments and take care of my coursework, but the problem is my qualifying exams are in a month. And so now <laughs> I'm <laughs> I have to like study three sort of mathematical subjects at a very very high level and sort of cram what uh, like most MIT PhD students spend a whole semester doing in a month because sort of I wasn't doing all I was supposed to be doing in the fall with respect to math because Okay, I'm in season in the fall. Football, I'm obviously doing everything I'm supposed to be doing. And math, I'm doing what I can. And while I could do my assignments, I was not preparing for my qualifying exam. So then sort of the month after that was just, you know, I would lock myself in a room with a chalkboard and lots of pieces of paper. And I would spend about like 14 to 15 hours a day just like going through this stuff and learning this stuff. And so I make it to my qualifying exam and I pass it and I'm very happy. And I am just exhausted. And I'm happy to be at MIT and I'm loving the math I'm doing, but I'm just thinking, do I really want to play another season? So I did um, computer science in 
college and like you, I like the problem solving aspect Mm -hmm. of it, but I found it very socially isolating. Mm -hmm. Um, And math is a very solitary or can be, I think, a very solitary pursuit. And football is the opposite of that. Has that been a huge adjustment for you? And how do you deal with that, that shift from being in such a team oriented activity to something where you're by yourself. And is it sort of different from the way other retired uh, team players articulate that? Because they go through the same sort of withdrawal of the bond and the locker room and the camaraderie. Yes. I have to say, I actually went through that withdrawal at a strange time. I went through that withdrawal when I left college football, when sort of I left Penn State where I'm playing with all of my best friends in the world. Like legitimately, if I name like my three or four best friends, these are all guys I played with where we're hanging out together. We're going to practice together. We're watching film together. We're having dinner together. And it's just so close. That is something I really missed when I got to the pros. And uh, I have to say, once I left the pros, the sort of level of camaraderie that I felt in professional football, this is not something that I – that I really missed. I mean, this is, uh, it pales in comparison to at least what it was like at Penn State. Which... And you, you were at Penn State at the time of complete turmoil when the Sandusky yes. scandal broke, when yes. Paterno, Paterno was forced out and then and died. Yes. Um, you talk about college football as being this like yeah. amazing life changing um, experience for you. And yet at the same time, other people see Penn State as the example of everything that's wrong mm-hmm. with college sports and how we exalt football to such a degree that we could allow the sexual abuse to happen unchecked because the school was so successful that people just looked the other way. Like, how do you reconcile those two things? This is a great question. And I didn't realize how dangerous of a thing this is until I was there at Penn State. And what do I mean by this? Well, I'm there and I don't really know Jerry Sandusky. I mean, this guy retires in like 2001, but all this stuff comes out about him, which is clearly true. This man is capable of convincing people, people who at the time I considered, and to some degree, I suppose, I still consider normal, reasonable people like you or I. He's managed to convince some of these people that he is still innocent to this day. And they truly believe that. That's apart from the reaction to the scandal, though. You were there, the sort of the blowback fell on players and coaches and the program and yeah, the university. Yeah, but this blowback, I mean. Was I, insignificant, as you write in the book, yeah. in comparison to what happened. I understand. Yes, it affects us. Yes, it's bad. Did, you know, were the NCAA sort of sanctions too heavy? Yeah, I think they were probably a little too heavy. But, I mean, this is just like, in my opinion, it's not even worth talking about in comparison to the real story here. One of the things you talk about in the book that's important to you is being a black mathematician and being yes. a role model and, yes. and working with kids. Yes. Um, have you always been conscious of that otherness in this field? No, no, not at all. I have to say throughout my math career from when I was very little to sort of even today, me being black has nothing to do with me and my math. It has had no effect on my experiences no effect on sort of my mathematical identity. But I've come to realize more recently that I am very much the exception here and that this is not the norm. 
and that it's much more normal for young African-American would-be mathematicians to feel discouraged in many ways, to feel discouraged because they look at a field and they look at, let's say, all the top American mathematicians, you know, at Princeton and MIT and, you know, wherever, and they don't see any African-American mathematicians and they wonder why. And they're in sort of classes with very strong students, often who have had some form of privilege. And I don't mean this in a bad way. I mean in the sense that they find themselves in classes with kids who have been doing, you know, International Math Olympiad, have had access to high-level mathematical training for many years, and they feel like they're already behind the eight ball. Because they get in these classes, let's say at MIT, and they have all these other kids in the class who know everything, who know all these things, and they feel like their upbringing and their education was insufficient, and they already feel behind the eight ball. And this is a really isolating thing paired with the fact that you feel like you're the one person who's very behind everyone else, and you're the one person who looks different. And so I've, uh, you know, I've counseled young African-American would-be mathematicians, and that's a, it's a real issue. And it's not one that I experienced, and I would say it's largely because, one, I didn't do my undergrad at MIT. And two, my whole life, my experience with mathematics, my learning experience with mathematics has been a very personal one. It's been extremely personal in the sense that it's just me in mathematics, no one else. Just about everything I've learned sort of in math, I've learned from a book. Me sitting by myself with math, sort of wrestling with it, interacting with it, and it's very much a personal enjoyable experience, whereas other students who sort of are more outward looking and they learn math sort of from a classroom environment, they're much more susceptible to things like this. John Urschel is the author with his wife, Louisa Thomas, of Mind and Matter, A Life in Math and Football. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. All right, if you enjoyed our conversation just now with John Urschel, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, uh, we talked some more with John Urschel because we liked him so much uh, that we just wanted to keep the conversation going. Uh, We discussed uh, the blind side in the bonus segment. We discussed uh, John's favorite mathematicians, his mathematical heroes, and a bunch of other good stuff. Uh, To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. I also wanted to let you know about Slate Day. That is right, Slate Day. It is a day of Slate. It's going to be an action-packed day of live podcasts and fun experiences. It's Saturday, June 8th on the High Line in New York. You can see the Waves and Outward mashup show featuring a performance from Ms. Cracker, play pop culture trivia with Slate's culture team, 
bring your kids to the mom and dad are fighting play date, see what next, interview Wyatt Snack, and much more. For tickets and more information, visit slate.com slash live. The French Open starts in a week, and when it does, you can be sure that Nick Kyrgios will be getting a lot of attention. That's because the 24-year-old Australian made headlines last week when, on our friend Ben Rothenberg's podcast, No Challenges Remaining, he dissed Rafael Nadal and Novak Djokovic. And then, in the second round of the Italian Open, Kyrgios threw a tantrum that concluded with him heaving a white chair onto the red clay and being defaulted from the match. Louisa Thomas, who co-wrote the book with John Urschel, of course, that we just talked about, is here now. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You profiled Curios in The New Yorker in 2017, and you wrote, at some point in almost every match, Curios tends to do something brilliant or he snaps. Almost two years later, this remains the reductive take about Nick Kyrgios. But as your story and Ben's conversation with him both show, nothing is quite that simple with Kyrgios. Let's start with an overview. Walk us through some of the brilliance and some of the snapping. A Kyrgios match can be pyrotechnic. I mean, he has amazing hands. Um, he is he plays a lot of variety. Um, he has an ability to um, kind of nonchalantly um, start batting around the ball and then just like pull out a hundred mile an hour forehand from the corner, you know, totally unexpectedly. He has basically uh, sort of introduced the underhand second serve, um, which is now kind of in vogue um, on the ATP and, and also the WTA. But um, he's, He's this kind of mercurial um, is the word that's often used to describe him, but it's it's a good one because he runs really hot and cold, um, and he seems to move um, between the extremes very quickly. He and that's also true of his play. I mean, that one of the reasons why it's so fun to watch him is that he will play with different spins. He'll play with different speeds. You never really know what you're going to expect, and that's one of the things that makes him a, a really difficult opponent um, because his opponents never know, really know what to expect and. Um, yeah, it's often very brilliant and sometimes very frustrating. Shall we listen to a clip from his interview with Ben Rothenberg? Here, Kyrgios talks about uh, his psyche. I, I know, like, deep down, like, I've had conversations with myself, like, is it just, like, is it a front? But, like, winning a Grand Slam or winning tennis matches to me, like, don't, they don't make me happy, you know? Yeah. Like, for instance, today, like, as soon as I won the match, like, I was just like, happy to get off the court, like, literally, like, get some food. I hadn't eaten all day, like... You just woken up like fifty minutes exactly. earlier. Exactly. Like yeah. that's what I mean is like <laughs> they, these things don't they don't make me happy, you know? Yeah. Like I've like I thought when I was young it would have been cool to have all this like the fame, like the money, like all this sort of stuff, but dude, it's not making me happy at all. Like I just wanna be home. Like I just wanna be like doing like low key things, you know. This isn't new. He said the same thing to you when you profiled him two years ago. He said, I don't think I wanted enough. You also noted perhaps he was tired. The Celtics had a playoff game against Cleveland the night before, and he had been up at 3 a.m. to watch. But the question for me is, does he have extraordinary self-knowledge, or does he have no self-knowledge at all? Is he being honest with himself? I think that's really the multi-million dollar <laughs> question. Um, if you're talking about sponsorships and uh, you know tournament um, winnings, because I think— um, Sometimes you can listen to him and think, wow, this person is incredibly self-aware and the entire tennis community is trying to read, um, has these very kind of predictable narratives. Either he's this incredible talent who 
um, just is really immature and will um, realize someday that he's been given this great gift and has a responsibility to it and will learn this work ethic and become this great champion. Um, or he's this kind of, you know, bratty kid who um, really is, it is a front and he doesn't really um, know what he's got and doesn't appreciate it and is bad for the sport and et cetera. Um, I tend to, I, I tend to fall on the, um, he actually is quite self-aware um, side of the spectrum. Um, he doesn't, he will cop to not really knowing himself. Um, that's one of the indications to me that he actually is pretty self-aware. I got to say, listening to the to Ben's podcast was really the first time I'd heard Curios speak at length. And I felt he was completely genuine. Yeah. Just like you said. I mean, I don't feel, I mean, obviously he's genuine if he's willing to sort of trash other players and sort of talk about the dark places, which he also mentioned when you talked to him two years ago, that the dark places that tennis takes him. But I don't think we appreciate enough as observers of sports what Kyrgios is saying and how true it is. I mean, this is actually a very mundane observation about high-level sports. Like, ask an Olympian, ask your husband, John Urschel, um, it is monotonous. It is repetitive. It can be enervating. It can be boring. It can be intellectually unstimulating. And the most successful athletes, the ones who don't wind up as all-time greats, you know, people that just carve out good careers or long careers, are either so driven that they don't care, that they don't get to the pinnacle, or they find ways to sublimate these natural frustrations with this line of work. I mean, maybe Curious is just articulating what we should all accept as totally normal, that it is weird to be a professional athlete and be able to go through the mental, emotional, and physical process that's required of you. I think uh, the frustration a lot of people have is that they're willing to accept that, but then why is he why is he on the court? You know, if he really doesn't want to play tennis, right. why is he playing tennis? You know, why is he, um, you know, kind of wasting not only his own time, but maybe, you know, the stadium full of people who bought tickets. Um, I am not one of those people. Um, I enjoy watching him play because, you know, I enjoy his game and it's, you know, a little bit different. Um, but it can be miserable for fans when he's tanking. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It can be totally miserable. And you're, and you're paying to, oh, yeah, to watch no. it. Oh, yeah, no. I mean, it, it's, it's – and, and he can be – he can sound very um, – well, frustrating when he's like, I don't owe these people anyone, anything. Right. And you're like, well, actually you do because you're going to take a check at the end of the day and that check is you know, paid for by the people who bought those tickets. So he has a really good record against Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic. I think he's six and six, which is you know kind of peerless uh, in the current tour. He beat all of them in his first attempt. And the thing that is so... <laughs> interesting about him is that all the things that you said are true, Stefan, but sports is a really is really good at weeding out people who yeah. act like Nick Kyrgios, who don't practice, who don't care, who have talent, and who don't work to build it and maintain it. And he is so good. And I think that there's a tendency for people to exaggerate and say that people who had unfulfilled promise are like the best that they've ever seen. But when people like, I think it was Paul Anacone in your piece, people who would know when they say he's the most talented player to come around in a decade or two, I think I believe them and I think they're being sincere because how could you not be to be as good as he is and not give a shit? Um, And so the questions that people ask about why don't you just quit, um, 
he is able to build this life for himself of lazing around and hanging out with his friends and his dogs by virtue of making a lot of money playing tennis. And he can make a lot of money playing tennis, not giving a full effort. And so that, I think, is the thing that's hard to reconcile for people. That's There's a really good reason for him not to quit. Well, but let me jump in there and say that that it might not just be that he'd rather be hanging out with his dogs. I mean, it's dangerous to be trying to psychoanalyze a athlete that you don't know. Oh, my know. God. It's like he is the person in the world <laughs> that I most want to psychoanalyze. Of course. Um, and you want to know why. There's got to be something there. I mean, most people's natural drive and ambition who have this kind of talent is to, like, crush the opposition and to make Tsitsipas look like, you know, roadkill. In your piece, Louisa, you quoted Andre Agassi, and he sort of talked about these two things. It's, on the one hand, incredibly frustrating to watch him because he's so good. And then Agassi said... With that being said, the journey I lived has taught me a lot about how deep one's struggles can be and how much good can still exist at the same time. You know, one thing that's really interesting is um, when I talked to him, we talked about um, Gael Monfils, who's a player who a lot of people um, cite as a kind of uh, analog in some ways for Curios. He's an incredibly talented, athletic um, Frenchman who is so much fun to watch and never really – quote unquote, fulfilled his promise. I mean, he was the guy who was like cleaning up at juniors in the same era as Djokovic and Murray. And I mean, he was he's incredibly, incredibly talented. And I was sort of I I brought him up um, to Nick being like, well, you know, aren't you kind of worried about turning into a player like Monfils? And he or or I knew also that he'd cited Monfils as one of his heroes. I was like, I don't quite understand that. And, And Nick's like, look, you are completely wrong. Monfils is a wonderful guy. He is happy. He is well-liked. He is fun. He makes people love tennis. Um, he is this person who just, he walks into a room and he makes like the room, you know, better. And I want to be exactly like that. I want to be happy. Like, I don't want to be Roger Federer. You know, I want to be Monfils. And people cannot accept that. And you can either say he's in denial, and a lot of people do, and a lot of people probably still do. Um, You can either, you can say that he's delusional. You can say that he's setting his sights, you know, too low. Or you can say that actually that's a really kind of brave thing to say in a sport that values, um, you know, the end result over everything else. Um, You know, but, but it is, it is, I thought it was an interesting thing to say. All right. Blinking siren alert for dime store psychoanalysis. But um, (laughs) a couple of things. When I was making the the point about whether he was being genuine or not, I think, um, to, to just be a little bit more clear on that, one theory and a thing that you wrote about and that Ben asked him about is that he puts on this front of not caring because he's afraid of what would happen if he tried his hardest and he didn't win, that that would just be be psychologically crushing. I don't know if that's true or not, um, but that's just something to throw out there. The other thing is there's a real chicken and egg issue here because it seems totally plausible to me that he wouldn't be happy doing anything. Like a lot of people are, you know, just not happy people. Like it's not an unusual phenomenon among our, uh, you know, uh, among human beings. And so is tennis the thing that makes him miserable or is he a miserable person who happens to play tennis? 
I don't know the answer, but I've these are the questions that are like popping in my head when I or, hear him talk. Or Louise, is he just he's a phenomenal athlete, full stop. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's just playing the wrong sport. He talks often about how much he loves team sports, how he loves basketball, how the one thing that really got him psyched in his career was being on the Davis Cup team and that joy came through when he led them to the finals. I mean people are different. Maybe it is just the wrong thing. And he is here because he started doing this when he was eight and he showed tremendous talent. Uh, all these things could be true. I mean, I have no idea. I mean, I think, and, and then what's, what was interesting to me when I was working on that piece is that even the people who were close to him, you know, his agent, who's one of his best friends, his sister, I mean, they sort of, and, and himself, he, they sort of didn't know, you know, I mean, people are complicated and especially someone who is, um, you know, he was 22 years old then. He's like in his mid-20s now. I mean, he he's still forming as a human being and he's in, doing it in this incredibly high pressure, um, high pressure cooker. And everything he says is dissected and everything he does is analyzed. And, and that's not the easiest environment. All right. Let's finish up by listening to one more clip from Ben Rothenberg's interview with Curious on the No Challenges Remaining podcast. And folks should listen to the whole thing. It's really really fascinating. As you can tell, we're fascinated by it. Um, here is Curious talking about Rafael Nadal. He's my polar opposite. Yeah. Like, literally my polar opposite. And I don't like... And he's super salty. Like, every time I've eaten him, he always... When he wins, it's like... It's it's fine, you know? He won't say anything bad. Like, he'll credit the opponent. Like, he competed well today. He was a great player. But then as soon as... As soon as I beat him, it's just like... He has no respect for me, like, my fans. like, And I'm like... And no respect to the game. And I'm like what are you talking about like I literally played this way when I beat you the other previous times and nothing changed like nothing changed when you beat me in Rome here a couple years ago nothing changed I was the same person so a couple things there that are interesting number one just the fact that he's talking about one of the top players in this way they're usually talked about with such reverence and he was I think even more um I think he was kind of I don't know if cruel is the right word but he was salty is the word he was like mean about Djokovic. He was yeah. mean about Djokovic. Yeah. Like talking about how Djokovic just wanted people to love him and the kind of desperation. Yeah. And he has there. a, it's actually worth noting that he has a, a, a mean streak. I mean, because yeah. he can be incredibly generous and funny and kind. And he actually has a, um, or at least when I was working on the story, he had a reputation of being a really good guy despite these kind of um, flagrant exceptions. Um, but, and, he's, you know, and he is incredibly generous toward Federer in, in, yeah. in, the, in this podcast. Yeah, and there was the thing that he did during a match with Stan Wawrinka where he yeah. said that, you know, somebody banged his girlfriend and that was, like, gross and and he rightfully got, you know, he got suspended for that. Um, but back to the N- Nadal comment. So he, I, I think Nadal is his opposite because Nadal is known as this this grinder and this, and this um, a guy who's, like, has the mentality to be able to go out and treat every day like it's, the most important thing that's ever happened. But what it's it's telling, I think, that what Kyrgios is focusing on there is that he thinks like Nadal's not genuine, that he's that he's two-faced, right. that um, this front that he puts on of being like magnanimous and being, um, you know, the, the like polished guy that he is in, a, in the um, press isn't real. Um, then again, I would kind of be pissed if Nick Kyrgios beat me too. Like in that match, in the in he the was match, totally salty. I mean, this is one of the funny things is that you know, in some ways, the reaction to his comments are sort of they were all predicted in the course of that podcast. Um, I mean, I thought Ben did a really great job of um, you know of kind of 
setting up the frame for which it was going to be received because everything he said was was very candid and everything he said was uh you know, the world sort of like screamed about and and people were very upset that he had the gall to say something, not necessarily that what he was saying in some cases um, was so offensive. I thought his comments about about Stefanos Tsitsipas were more interesting because the way he framed his relationship with Tsitsipas, (laughs) obviously, um, the way he described Tsitsipas is that he's so focused and so locked in and so into his own world, whether you think that world is weird because he's posting, you know, beefcake selfies or not, that he feels as if he's just not human enough. He's just not chill enough. He doesn't want to hang enough. And Ben actually says to him, dude is like posting YouTube travelogue videos. (laughs) Like who wouldn't want to hang with that guy? I know. I thought actually Ben did a really nice job actually in that moment because, you know, he was sort of on the one hand, calling for more personality, more differences, more sort of, mm-hmm. you know, fly your own flag. And then he was sort of being like, that guy's really weird. <laughs> and Ben was like, look, dude, you know, you like, like, what do you guy, want? Right. Exactly. And I think Ben actually said, you should yeah, like this exactly. guy. Why don't you play doubles together? Yeah. And then there were, he was like, okay, I'll play doubles with him. <laughs> he said, I'll play doubles yeah, with him. But, then but he I can't said, talk to him. You right, know, look, like, <laughs> look up in the locker room and say hello first. Yeah. So, um, I mean, he's a, he's a complicated guy. Louisa Thomas profiled Nick Kyrgios in The New Yorker in 2017. She's also the co-author with John Urschel of Mind and Matter. Louisa, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. And now it is time for After Balls. Um, we didn't ask John Urschel about this, but as you all know, NFL teams ask some really dumb questions at the combine of college seniors who are entering the draft or college juniors who are entering the draft. Um, in his book, Urschel says that one team asked me to list everything I could do with a paperclip. I don't know. How many things can you do with a paperclip? Pick a lock. <laughs> put some papers together. Get a SIM card out of a cell phone. Get a SIM card out of a cell phone. That's good. Yeah. Battery out of something. Similar operation. Use it to build a bomb. Uh-huh. I mean, see if you from, were an from NFL MacGyver. from MacGyver, I haven't done that myself. If you were a GM and the player said you could use it to build a bomb, would that be the right answer? I think the right answer is use it to gouge out someone's eye hmm. or testicles. <laughs> exactly. Thank you, Stefan. Josh, what's your paperclip? <laughs> it's going with paperclip. I like it. There is a, a micro genre of stories, books, and documentaries about middle-aged white guys who, as part of a midlife crisis try to train themselves to dunk. Dan Ingber wrote about this for New York Magazine in 2015 in a story headlined The Dunk Quest, Why Old Dudes Want So Badly to Jam. Noting the existence of blogs and articles with such titles as I Will Dunk, Quest to Dunk, One Man's Quest to Dunk, The Dunk Quest, and Unfinished Business. Dan wrote, it's a funny fact of the Dunk Quest literature that its heroes never really grapple with the meaning of their stories. No one seems to notice, for example, that other guys have made the same attempt, that they're not the first or only ones to set out on this journey. Nor do they acknowledge that their search for manly glory has an underlying racial code, that the Dunk Quest's every man or average Joe is always white. These wannabe Dunkers are not alone in their basketball-related questing, and I want to identify another group, uh, also men, also white, also on a hoops-related journey. These men are older, and they want to perfect the art of shooting free throws. There's Bob Fisher from Centralia, Kansas, who, according to John Branch's 2012 
New York Times article has labeled three ring binders with names like grip strength, range of motion, stance, and movement variability, and filled them with photographs, diagrams, and equations. There's Ted St. Martin, a California dairy farmer, who, according to Sports Illustrated, believes the shot should have a high arc. The shooter's motion should be produced from the waist up. The proper stance for righty is with the right toe at the line and the left foot angled comfortably behind. Vice versa for a lefty. And there's Tom Amberry, another Californian, who says it's all about focus and concentration. A free throw takes six seconds, and you can't think of anything else during those six seconds. You have to put all other thoughts out of your mind. The dunk quest typically ends in failure due to small hands and or inability to jump. The free throw quest, unsurprisingly, usually ends in success. And that success is very often extraordinary. Amberry, who died in 2017, made, uh, why don't you guess, Stefan, how many free throws, what's his record for most free throws he made in a row? Hmm, I'm going to go with 722. 2,750. According to stories at the time, he didn't stop because he missed, but because the gym he was shooting in kicked him out. Uh, Three years later, St. Martin set the record that still stands. 5,221 in a row. And then there's Fisher, who I mentioned before. He goes for speed. He has the record 50 free throws in a minute. That doesn't seem like that many. They could beat that, I'm sure. Uh, Another thing they have in common is a desire to teach Shaquille O'Neal how to shoot free throws. Shaq did actually have a free throw guru for a time, a guy named Ed Palubinskis, who played at LSU in the 70s and was the leading scorer in the 76 Olympics when he played for Australia. But according to SI, former LSU basketball coach Dale Brown felt St. Martin, the guy who made 5,221 around, could solve his star center's free throw futility. Shaq was a 58% shooter from the line during his years in Baton Rouge. But Brown was unable to have St. Martin tutor the All-American big man due to NCAA bylaws. Shaquille would have been receptive. He was a tender, gentle, and sensitive guy. Watching Ted would have been good for him. Then there's Ann Barry, who co-wrote a book on free throw shooting titled Free Throw, Seven Steps to Success at the Free Throw Line. The Lakers reportedly gave a copy to Shaquille O'Neal. Uh, per a media report that I'm quoting from. Ambury is my favorite of these guys. He was born in North Dakota in 1922 and was allegedly offered a contract by the Minneapolis Lakers at one time before becoming a podiatrist. He didn't play basketball for 40 years before picking one up after he retired. The LA Times wrote that according to his own notes, he made 500 consecutive free throws 473 different times. Let us end with a clip from a 1994 NBC Evening News feature on Amberry, who at that time was 71 years old. We watched as he went through his daily two-hour 500-shot workout. And, well, I know it sounds rude and all, standing here in the presence of greatness, but this is starting to get very, very boring. Tom Amberry and other old free-throw shooters, I salute you and your boring ways. Stefan, what is your paperclip? Weather permitting, I play softball every Sunday morning at Turtle Park in my neighborhood in D.C. It's pretty low-key. It's not a league. It's just pickup. The game's claim to fame is that it was first held on the weekend of the Watergate break-in in June of 1972, and 47 years later is still going. There's even a couple of guys that played in that first game. I won't say going strong because it's been a trying season so far. Our numbers are down. A few regulars have switched from old man softball to old man hardball. A few others have quit playing because of the unstoppable forces of time. On Sunday, our numbers were so low that we had to merge with another old man softball game just over the line in Maryland. And boy, did I have a shitty day. My neck has been a mess, stiff and sore. My range of motion has been terrible, which has thrown off 
everything. I popped out like three times and booted two balls at short, including a hard hit one hopper that allowed the winning run to score. I'm not going to pretend to be all Dame Lillard. No excuses. I definitely would have made that play had I not been hurt and also hadn't had to pitch to 90% of our batters in the broiling sun. At 56, I'm in the young to middle range of the game. There are a few players in their late 30s who have little kids and a lot of dudes in their 60s who don't. Our oldest player has been a former career foreign service officer who's in his late 70s and can still pick it at third base. In my first season, I crushed one down the line, and right off the bat, I was worried I might have killed the guy. He calmly stuck up his glove and made the catch. I googled old man softball, and it turns out, no surprise, that the old softball player is media catnip. 88-year-old still going strong playing softball. That was from a 2008 story in Spokane, Washington. It looks like that guy died in 2016, so he's not going strong playing softball anymore. The Wall Street Journal did a video on the 86-year-old softball player whose wife calls his team the old farts. These stories are usually handled the way you'd expect with the old people treated like infants. Let's listen to a clip from an Arizona TV station. If you rest... You rust. Right. And there's a group of seniors that proves every day that age is only just a number. Ain't nothing but a number. A group of 12 senior citizen softball teams meet up every spring to stay young. And this year, the Falcons have a 97-year-old catcher and a 90-year-old pitcher as well. Fox 10's Mercy Jones with the story. Some old guys get regular coverage, like George Londy of Michigan, 2015, 93-year-old man on local softball team, 2016, local man still swinging bat at age 94, 2017, George Londy, 95, is one of 10 players over 80 in Lansing's Senior Softball League. It looks like George was playing in 2018, but no profile. I hope he's still at it now. Get on the story, Lansing Media. The dean of old man softball players, as far as I can tell, is Tony Snetro of the Young Viejos softball team in Coral Gables, Florida. Tony changed his name from Sinatra when he was a younger man because he was tired of people asking him if he was related to Frank. The first story I found in Google about Tony was from CNN in 2011, World War II veterans still swinging. That was when Tony was a mere 93. In 2013, a local TV station did a piece, 95-year-old man leads young viejos. The Miami Herald did the most comprehensive profile in 2014. At 97, Tony Snetro provides inspiration to the young viejos softball team. My arm is all torn up and I can't throw, Snetro said, but I enjoy it. It's my therapy. He also offered some advice. Everybody says to me, Tony, what's your secret? I say, eat hot peppers. I've been eating hot peppers almost every day. I grew them in the garden. I eat the crushed red peppers. I feel pretty good. In December 2017, a blogger named The Grove Guy wrote a tribute to Tony upon his 100th birthday. It noted that doctors had forced Tony to hang up his spikes a couple of years earlier, but Tony suited up for the game on his centenary and, quote, during the fifth inning, he'd had it with watching. Tony picked up his glove and walked out to left field. He played a little catch before he was persuaded to return to the dugout. After the game, Tony received a proclamation from the city declaring December 19th, 2017, Tony Snetro Day in Coral Gables. I'm not sure I want to be playing softball when I'm 97, but who knows? Maybe I will be. 
That's our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup, and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you're still here, I'm guessing you might want even more Hang Up and Listen in our bonus segment this week. Josh and I continue our conversation with John Urschel. I am not like one of the most brilliant mathematical minds in the world. I am at a place with a lot of the most brilliant mathematical minds in the world. But the things that sort of make me a great mathematician are not sort of being the most brilliant person in the world. It's, you know, things like hard work. It's things like creativity. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. For Josh Levine, I'm Stefan Fatsis. Remember Zelmo Beatty. And thanks for listening. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.